Would you open up in the Bible to Mark chapter 14? We're going to be in verses 26 to 31. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. The enemy is not Russia, as you might feel these days. It's not talking about China, not talking about any political party, not talking about another religion, and not talking about another worldview. I'm not talking about the encroaching secularism in our society. I'm not talking about terrorists. I'm not talking about atheists. I'm not even talking about demons or devils or Satan himself. What I'm talking about is something different, but it is anti-God, and it is anti-truth, and it is anti-gospel, anti-Christ. It's something that exists to dethrone God, to erase His Word. It's something that will stab backs and betray friends. It'll tear apart churches. It'll rupture fellowship. It's threatening. It's dangerous. You could even say it puts us in danger of hellfire itself. I'm not talking about anything out there. I'm actually talking about something that's in this room this very morning. Even further than that, I'll go and I'll say that it's in your own heart this very moment. You say, what could be so dangerous that you would say that it could put us in danger of hellfire, that it's anti-God and it's anti-truth and it's anti-gospel and it's anti-Christ and it would stab backs and it would betray friends. What could possibly be that dangerous? And now I don't think it could be in me. Well, it is. And it's called pride. Pride. One Puritan said that Humility makes men angels, and pride makes angels devils. If it makes angels devils, just imagine what it does to us, men and women made in the image of God. If we're being honest, we must face the fact that there's a devilry in all of us. And the particularly insidious nature of this particular sin is that it's so invisible The people who are most prideful are the least aware. Pride is like an invisibility cloak. The more you wear it, the harder it is to see. It's a shapeshifter. You see, your pride could make you religious or it could make you rebellious. Your pride could make you want to be a star in the movies or it could make you want to go to the church and minister. Your pride could turn you into a theologian or a thief. Pride is a shape-shifting reality. It doesn't always look the same in every person. And sometimes our very acts of pride, because of the way they look, can be affirmed and encouraged by the people around us. Invisible in so many ways. The question is not, are you in danger of pride? The question is not whether... You have pride in your heart. The question is, 
Are you leaving the cancer of pride untreated? How are you dealing with pride? I wonder if you're aware of areas in your life that you are prideful, that you are self-reliant, not Christ-reliant, that you think more highly about yourself than you ought to think. Our text this morning, we're going to see a demonstration of human pride. We're going to see it in one of the most prominent disciples, Peter himself, and I do think that as we look at this, we're going to see a little bit of Peter in all of us. Let me give you a little bit of the background. So we're there in Mark chapter 14. Hopefully you have your Bible open. It'll be so much easier for you to follow along and learn from the text of God's Word. You'll be able to see that what I'm trying to explain is not from my own mind or opinion, but this is what God's Word reveals. I want to give you the context of this section. This is the, the last week of Jesus' life. We've been discussing this for now several months. In chapter 14, he has repeatedly been telling his disciples that death is just around the corner. In fact, all of chapter 14 essentially has been about Jesus' impending doom. In chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, you can look and see that there the religious elites resolved to kill Jesus by stealth. We saw just after that the section where the woman anoints Jesus with this precious ointment, and Jesus says, hey, uh, she may not have known it, but she was doing it for my burial, again, bringing the attention to his coming death. We get the section right after that in verses 11, 10 and 11, that Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas. Just after that, we get the idea that Jesus is going to be betrayed. One of you will betray me, he says. If the Son of Man will die because he'll be betrayed, he'll be handed over to the Romans. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper there in verses 22 to 25 which of course is all about his death. He holds up a piece of bread. This is going to be my body broken for you. This is going to be my blood poured out for you. It's all about his death. In other words, I want you to see that the context of this section of Scripture is that Jesus is repeatedly pointing to his impending death. He's about to die. His disciples have had the hardest time grasping this. They've, they've just really not got it. Uh, from the very beginning in chapter 8, when he began telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, they have been resisting him. Peter, in particular, has not been able to swallow the fact that his own Messiah, the one that he's trusted and begun to follow, will die. He resists it. He even rebukes Jesus, uh, telling him, no, 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 you can't go do that. You can't die. You're supposed to set up a kingdom. Jesus is continually telling them, I will die. Well, it's gotten to a fever pitch at this point in the gospel. I'm going to die. Everything he's been doing this night has been reminding them of his death. It's just around the corner. In other words, get, get a feel of the atmosphere of this text. It'll help you understand it better. It's dark. It's actually literally dark as well. It would be the end of Thursday. So the, the sun is setting, they, they've gone out of the city of Jerusalem, and verse 26 will tell us they're on the Mount of Olives, it's evening, the, there's no street lamps out there to illuminate the night, uh, it's getting dark, and all they've been hearing are dark, foreboding news, it's dark, foreboding news of the coming death of their Savior. And in this section, Jesus is going to provide comfort for them, comfort for his disciples, but we're also going to see in response to Jesus' offer of comfort is protest because of pride. 
going to break up the section, this uh, 26 to 31 section, into two headings. One, we're going to see Jesus' comfort. And two, we're going to see Jesus's, or sorry, Peter's protest. So you know where we're going. Each of our headings have three subpoints. All right? Note takers? Three subpoints. Two big headings, three subpoints for each. First, let's read the text. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, We'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's begin with the first part of the section, Jesus' comfort. We're going to see that he comforts them in three ways. One, that he leads them in a song. Two, that he predicts their future failure, and three, that he also predicts their future restoration. Let's look at the text. First, that he leads them in a song. It says that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This could easily be tacked onto the previous section as the final part of the Passover meal that Jesus had led them through. Remember, the Passover meal, this meal given to the Jews for all these years, these centuries passed down, and now you have these Jewish men in the upper room participating in it, and Jesus does something incredible. He transforms the meal into something new. He makes it into a meal for the church. It's a new covenant meal now, and he, he gives it new meaning that the bread that they would eat at that meal now is going to refer to his own body being given in death for his people, and the cup that they would have partaken has new meaning. It now means the blood of their Messiah poured out for them for the forgiveness of their sins. And after that, they, they sing a hymn. And you just got to imagine the, the disciples here. Just, it's getting closer to that moment that they will have to watch their Savior die, and it's been so hard for them all along. And as they wrap it up, Jesus, who would have led them through the meal, who would have talked them through all of the meanings and the symbols, now as their leader, as their rabbi, leads them in the singing of a hymn. I find this interesting. I don't want to just rush right through this. I mean, how many of us rush right through this little detail that Jesus and the disciples in the one of the darkest moments of their lives, they sing a hymn. As they reflect on the impending death of their Lord, they sing a hymn. I mean, this is a moment of sadness. This is a moment of sorrow. This is a weighty moment, and Jesus leads them to sing. I just want to reflect on this. How many of you would love to hear Jesus sing? I mean, wouldn't it be incredible to be there in that upper room and to hear the song of our Savior as he leads them and he invites them to sing with him? I want to observe something, and I'm going to say that this isn't the main point of the text, but I think it's worth pointing out 
Because we in the American church have adopted a kind of odd approach to singing, especially in churches, that we think that worship is evaluated by the emotional enthusiasm of the people participating. And that the songs, therefore, that we sing and the services that we create have to aim at creating a sort of emotional response. And then we use the metrics to evaluate worship. We say, well, if there were hands raised, if there were eyes closed, if there were hands clapping, that means it was effective. Now, listen, I'm all for hands raised, eyes closed, and hands clapping. I'm going to Uganda next week, and I'm going to be in their church. I'm sure I'm going to see a lot of that. I'm going to be the odd man out if I don't, all right? I think that is an appropriate way to express yourself. If that's what you want to do, amen, go and do it. Don't bring a distraction to yourself. Don't lead us all to think about you. Let's all think about Christ, but let's worship the Lord that way. But the problem becomes when we start crafting our services around an experience around emotions, around feelings. And so often people come into American church services and the songs are all happy and go lucky and chipper. And the question we got to ask is, well, what do you sing when you're miserable? I'm serious. What do you sing when you're sad? What do you sing when you just heard your Savior's about to die? What do you sing when your Savior just told you that one of you is going to betray him? How do you sing in the low moments? How do you sing when you're a tortured soul? So often we, we craft our, our worship services in such a way that there's no way to process the things we're going through, the real hard, tragic things in life, because we, we don't have songs that have the language to express pain. And when you come in, it's almost like, we're trying to convince everyone that Christianity is just happy all the time. It's just always happy. And all the songs we do are happy. What do you do? How do you sing in a situation like this? You realize that God has given us a worship book already called the Psalms? And you know that half the Psalms are laments? That are, they are written by people who in that moment are unhappy? tormented, miserable, and in their misery and in their agony, what are they doing? They're looking to God. Church, we need to have songs that teach us how to process grief and tragedy and pain. And Jesus in this moment is leading the disciples to worship in the middle of this dark moment. We can be instructed by this. Jesus leads them in song in the middle of their sorrow. By the way, this is why we sing songs like, I asked the Lord that I might grow. If you can recall that song, you might sing and think, what are we singing about? It's a lament. It's a reminder of the pain that God often brings into our lives to humble us so that we might learn to trust in Him. This is why we sing songs like, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. This is why we sing songs like, Lord, from sorrows deep I call. 
because we need language. We need to learn how to process grief and pain and agony and sorrow. And the songs that we are to sing in church are not just meant to be all victory. Victory is sure. Victory is guaranteed. But life is hard. And we need to learn to process that. And I think Jesus demonstrates this reality by teaching his disciples to sing. I wonder if you realize how much singing is a part of your following Jesus. I wonder if you realize how much singing is a part of your helping other people follow Jesus. That your singing is something God has called us to. For some people who... Uh, they're okay with showing up to church after the songs because, you know, I don't need the sing-songy stuff. I want the meat. Like, I want a sermon. I want the text. I want good theology. But that songy stuff, like, I don't really need that. I'm going to show up to church, you know, half hour late. I'll come in after that stuff because that stuff's not really for me. I just want to tell you, if that's been your mindset, I would encourage you to think that that would be standing in opposition to what Jesus is doing here. It would be standing in opposition to what the church has done historically throughout the ages. Friends, it would be standing in opposition to God himself who calls his people to sing all throughout the scriptures. Jesus provides comfort in this dark moment by leading them in a hymn not all he does. He begins to tell them their future failure. He begins to predict the future, and he doesn't leave out the bad details. Hey, you're going to fail. Look at this in verse 27. Verse 27, and Jesus said to them, after they had sung this hymn, and they're out at the Mount of Olives now, it says, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He tells them they're all going to Scandalizo is the Greek word. It's where we get the idea of scandal. You're all going to fall into this big scandal. You're going to fall away. It's a really powerful word. It is often used to describe complete apostasy. You know, people who deny the Lord Jesus and walk away from him entirely, they're going to experience a temporary apostasy here. They're going to fall away from Christ. They're going to scandalize Christ to fall away from him. They're going to abandon him. At the moment that they are tested, their loyalty will be found wanting. He quotes Zechariah 13.7. Look there in the text. Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away, for it is written. He actually cites an Old, passage, Old Testament passage, an old prophecy uh, that is describing the Messiah's death and what happens and the circumstances around it. I will strike the shepherd, I referring to God the Father, the shepherd referring to the Messiah, and the sheep referring to the Messiah's followers. God the Father will strike his Messiah, and the sheep who follow the Messiah will scatter. Jesus seems to be having a thought about Zechariah a lot in this last portion of Mark, as if he was meditating on it, and he was reflecting on this particular verse, that when he is stricken, that his people, his followers, his disciples will abandon him. They're going to fail him. The previous section, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they all went, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And they all you know, took turns going around the table. Is it going to be me? Now Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away. There will be one who betrays me. 
hands me over. And that'll be Judas, as you know. But all of you are going to abandon me in the time of testing. None of you will prove to be loyal when it counts. They're going to fall away. I want to just pause and reflect on what he's saying here. Look at that, that, that passage. Just stare at it for a moment. There in your Bible, you see it? I will strike the shepherd. I, referring to God, will strike the shepherd, referring to Jesus. You know, there are some people who read verses like this and they go, divine child abuse. Heard that one? Father crushing the son on the cross? No, that makes God a moral monster. He couldn't do that, which of course betrays a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. The reason I want you to pause and look at this is because those few words are at the very heart of the gospel. That God the Father voluntarily sends His Son, and the Son voluntarily goes. Why? That he might lay down his life. That he might be stricken by his own father. Why? So that we who deserve to be stricken for our sins can be forgiven. Isn't this glorious? This is the gospel. You are guilty before a holy God. And God, because He is good, must punish your sin. But God has provided a way of salvation for you in that He will enter His own creation in the person of Jesus Christ and He will come and He will take on Himself all the guilt of all the sin of all his people who would ever believe they are put on him, the burden and the guilt and the filth and the shame of sin on Christ. And the Father strikes the Son. Why? So you don't have to be stricken. Substitutionary atonement, church. It is beautiful, it is glorious, and it is your only hope because you will stand before the living God. And you will face him on the day of judgment. And you will not be able to face him in your own righteousness. You have none. No one does. No one has a righteousness that will enable him to stand the judgment. You need a substitute. You need someone to pay for your sins. You need a righteousness that's not your own. And that is what Jesus has come to do, to bear your sin and to suffer for it so that you entrusting him will not have to pay for your sin. And then Jesus turns around and he gives you his free gift of righteousness so that you are justified forever. If you come to our church and you have not yet believed this good news, we are so glad you're here. And the good news is at this very moment, you could reach out and grab Christ and experience forgiveness right now. You can have your own substitute in Jesus Christ. And that you won't have to be afraid on the day of judgment. You won't have to be afraid of your impending death. Because you will know that all the guilt and all the sin that you have accrued in your life has already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. Jesus reminds his disciples of the words of the ancient prophet, I will strike the shepherd. 
And even as the sheep are being scattered, I mean, the people that the Son of God came to die for will literally run away from him as he gives his life for them. He's predicting his own death and their own failure. You say, how does that provide comfort? I'm under the heading still, if you remember the outline. This is Jesus' comfort. He sings with them, but then he predicts their failure. Well, he doesn't only predict their failure. Watch this. Look at verse 28. But after I am raised up, what is that a prediction of? Resurrection. After I'm raised up, after he dies on that cross, makes payment for sin, he will rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. This is a historical fact. This is what he did. He knew that he would do this before he died. He just tells them like it's a foregone conclusion. I'm going to be raised, you know, after I raised up. I'm going to take my life up again. I'm going to vindicate all my claims, all the things that I've said. You'll know to be true because I will rise from the dead. And then he goes on to say, after I'm raised from the dead, I'll go before you to Galilee. It's as if Jesus is opening up his playbook for the disciples. It's like, hey, this is going to happen, all right? I'm going to die. You're going to, all going to get scared. You're going to run off. You're going to scandalize. You're going to, you're going to leave me in the moment of darkness. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to conquer death, right? I'm going to, I'm going to raise from the dead, and then I'm going to meet you up in Galilee again, okay? And, and, and he's just speaking of the future. Jesus' knowledge of the future is as good as our knowledge of right now. I mean, what's happening around us and we see with our two eyes, Jesus could see the future in, 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 with equal clarity. He knows exactly what is going to happen. He's going to die. He's going to see his disciples abandon him. He's going to rise from the dead. And then after he does that, he's going to meet them in Galilee, and he's going to restore them. And what's interesting about his mention of Galilee is that Galilee's home to these guys, right? The, uh, Jerusalem is the place where they traveled to, and it's where Jesus is going to end his life on that cross. But Galilee has always been home, and he's basically saying, I'm going to meet you back at home. Like, after this is all done, I'll see you at home. I'll, I'll, we'll re, regather, regroup in Galilee. And it's as if Jesus is saying, it's not over. Like, I'm going to die, and we're going to suffer, and you're going to leave, and, and that's all going to happen. But we'll I'll see you again in Galilee. <laughs> we're going to regroup. And sure enough, what happens? Chapter 14, verse 50, all the disciples fall away. Look at that. It's right there in your verse. You can just look over at the next section. They all left him and fled. Chapter 15, verse 37, Jesus does die on the cross. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, he does rise from the dead. And chapter 28 of the book of Matthew, they meet him again where? In Galilee. In other words, it happens exactly how Jesus said it would happen. He's comforting the disciples by saying, look, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm in complete control over this situation. My death is not an accident. This is completely part of God's plan. And your failure is not some unforeseen thing that's going to throw me off. I know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to abandon me, and we're going to regroup in Galilee, and we're going to be prepared for worldwide mission. It's all going to be okay. I mean, doesn't this demonstrate the divine nature of our Savior? I just... I, I you know, say this at the risk of being repetitive, but, but it's repetitive in Mark. Because what you see, like, section after section after section is that Jesus is doing things that only God could do. 
And every time he speaks of the future with absolute certainty and then what he declares will happen actually happens, you know what he's doing? He's operating as the divine Savior. He's demonstrating his divinity. divinity. Jesus, following Jesus, is not following some good moral teacher merely. It's following the the living God. When you say you're following Jesus, this is what following God is. It is entrusting your life to a God who is so astoundingly merciful that he came to us in the person of Christ. He knows the future. He knows you. He knows what you'll do. He knows what will happen to you. He knows how it will all end. Isn't that amazing in bolstering our faith in him? It should cause our faith and trust to soar because of who he is. But also, I want you to consider this about Jesus, just as we kind of finish up the section about Jesus' comfort. I find so much comfort considering Jesus' mercy in this section. Isn't it amazing that Jesus chose these men knowing full well they would fail him at his time of greatest need? He knew that they would do that. He's predicting it. He saw it coming. He's not surprised. Jesus called them to himself anyway, knowing that they were sinners, knowing that they would mess up. He loved them. He devoted himself to them. He dies for them. Is this because they've deserved it? No. It's because he is love incarnate. The disciples don't act a certain way to draw love out of the heart of the Savior. Follow this. They don't need to act a certain way to draw love out of the Savior. Jesus loves because he is love. He's not requiring you to perform before he loves you. He chose them knowing their failures, knowing their sins, knowing they would mess up, knowing their missteps. There's a scene in one of my favorite movies um, where William Wallace, what, what movie? Braveheart, right? William Wallace, he's in this critical battle, but his ally betrays him. The ally turns on him, and the ally is wearing this metal helmet, so William Wallace doesn't know who it is, and he gets knocked down, and William Wallace is lying there like he's dead, and the man comes up to him with his helmet, and just in that moment, Wallace jumps up and rips off the helmet, and in that moment, he sees the face of his betrayer and realizes that it was his friend. And the moment in the, in the movie is just fantastic because it shows you the emotional response of the guy being betrayed, of Wallace as he's betrayed. And you just see it in his face. He, he's, he's not so much angry as he is gutted by it. Just, just broken. He's sad that it would be a friend that would betray him. I think of that moment of betrayal, sadness. I think of Jesus, and I go, you know what? Jesus never surprised by my betrayals. I never caught him off guard. He never looked at me and said, what? You? He didn't go, oh my goodness. You know, I died for all your past sins, 
but all these future sins, man, I didn't see those coming. He doesn't say, well, your failure quota is full today. From now on, it's judgment for you. Because I didn't anticipate all this baggage that, you know, you kind of keep working with. I thought you were going to be done with this a long time ago. Isn't it amazing, the mercy of Christ, that he knew and he knows all your past sins, yes, all your current sins, yes, but also all your future sins. And all of those have been forgiven as well. And when the Father struck the Son, He included all your future failures in His striking. That you, Christian, do not have to pay for your sins. What a Savior. What a Savior. And so if you right now are going, oh man, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. You don't want to be the kind of person that's stuck in what I think is one of the saddest conditions. Just one of the saddest conditions a person can be stuck in. And that is to be feeling like a failure, to be feeling guilty, to be feeling convicted of sin, and at the same time feeling that you cannot come to Jesus because he won't take you in. That is the worst place to be. And let me tell you, if your Jesus that you've got up here in your mind says that he won't take you because of the sins you've committed, that is not Jesus. That is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. The Jesus of the Scriptures invites sinners to come. He says, come you weak and you weary and you burdened with sin. I have come not for the healthy. I've come for the sick. I've come those who need a Savior. The people who think they got their lives together, I haven't come for them. But sinners... That's who I came to save. And if you feel in your heart that you are a sinner, that you are a failure, then let me tell you, Jesus is for you. And you can come by faith this very instant and receive the fullness of forgiveness and salvation and adoption as his son or his daughter. That's our Savior. He knows all that you have done, are doing, and will do, and he invites you to come anyway because he pays for it all on his cross i would be so encouraged by these i was encouraged even this week surprised at this reality as i studied it and didn't really know what i would find going into studying it and was encouraged at the lord's forbearance of sinners like me how patient he is with us church are you thankful for the patience of our savior how patient has he been with you that He has seen all your failures and He is sticking with you. And He has said that He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that you cannot surprise Him with your failures. You cannot do something so heinous He would disown you. He's so kind. Well, that was the comfort that Jesus gave them by reminding them that His own death, they would scatter, but even though they would scatter, He would regather them and He would use them still, and bring them home. But let's now look at our second heading, Peter's protest. Peter's protest, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter latches on to that part where he mentioned they'd fall away. That part about that resurrection, 
The part about meeting back in Galilee, no. The part that you said we'd fall away, I, I take issue with that. You know, just a few verses ago, they're all saying, humbly, is it I? It's almost as if in the intervening verses from then to here, it's like Peter resolved to not be the one that would betray him. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. I don't want it to be me. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus responds to his protest. Look at this, verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, again, this is a way to emphasize what he's about to say. This is emphatic. I tell you, and he gets specific. You know, tonight. This very night. Right now, you're like super bold and courageous. A few hours, you're going to betray me. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter just can't stand this. Jesus you know, doubles down, you know, you are going to betray me. Let me actually tell you exactly how it will happen. But look at verse 31. But he said emphatically, that word is, is the only time, the Greek word here is only used here in the whole New Testament. It's translated different ways in different uh, translations. One translation says insistently. He said insistently. One says he said vehemently. Another says, he kept insisting. Another says, he insisted emphatically. I think you get the point. There's a kind of aggression to his response, isn't there? This won't happen. He is, it's a word that conveys, he, he didn't just say this once. He's like arguing with Jesus. I, I won't do this. I insist I won't do this. I emphasize I won't do this. Believe me, I'm not going to do this. And look at Peter, the natural leader of the group. Look at the last little sentence there. And they all said the same. How pride trickles over into the hearts of the people around us. You see, this might be misunderstood by a first-time reader. If we think that Peter here is being bold, heroic, and courageous, but the fact that in a few verses he's going to be cowering before a schoolgirl makes us realize these are not heroic words. These are proud words. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, the pride could look like cowardice, but pride can also look like courage. And God sees the heart. And Jesus here points it out. Jesus, or sorry, Peter, has a Peter in his brain that's different from the Peter in real life. See this? The Peter in his brain, like this Peter that he has going on in his head, this Peter is valiant, courageous, bold, noble, loyal. That's the Peter up here. The Peter in reality is weak, feeble, panicky, and willing to betray his own friend and Savior. Now, before we analyze Peter's pride more closely, I think what I just said about Peter 
actually true of all of us. There's a you up here that's different from the you here. That you have ideas of yourself that is not aligned with reality. I say that because I know that about myself. I don't pretend to be different than you in this regard. There are ways we think of ourselves that are not true. And they're not in accordance with reality. And that we have bought hook, line, and sinker the idea that we are far better in here than we are here. We, we have this idea in our minds of who we are, and we are blind to the reality of who we are. The thing is, the hard thing is, is what I said earlier, how do you know? Because pride in that way of thinking is not easily identifiable by the one who's thinking that way. I mean, you might think you have the, you might think you're the most self-aware person in the room. And, and people who suffer from pride usually do. Oh, that's not me. A person might be thinking this very moment. But I know someone who does have an inflated view of themselves. You see, we often think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and it begins to express itself in various ways. And so sometimes we can't really tell if we're the ones doing that, but we can often tell the ways it expresses itself. So I want to just look at what, is, what Peter does. I want to point at what he does and ask you to reflect on whether you do this. First of all, let's, let's notice this about Peter. He thinks he's unique. Look at what he says there in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I'm different, Peter says. I'm unique, Peter thinks. I have something they don't. I have more discernment. I am more resilient. I am more educated. I am more theologically sound. I have better training. I have more courage. I was raised better than these guys. This could never happen to me. We begin to believe that we are not susceptible to the same temptations as all the other people. We're different than them. Yeah, they're just human. I'm something else. Superhuman. I don't have the same temptations that they have. I'm stronger than they are. Peter sets himself apart from the rest. They might, but I never will. You ever have those thoughts? You hear about Someone who fails and you go, I just can't possibly understand how they could do something like that. What is that betraying? It betrays that you have just put yourself in a completely different category than that person. That you can't possibly envision yourself being tempted in the same way that person was. You know, I read an article this week about the moral failures of Christian leaders. Invariably, all of the moral failures of Christian leaders begins with this Peter mindset. That could never happen to me. Beware if that's the way you think. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands 
Take heed lest he fall. Have you convinced yourself that you are not susceptible to certain sins? Have you convinced yourself of that? And thus you don't get the appropriate accountability and help and care and compassion you need. You know, as soon as you start convincing yourself of this, that you are uniquely prepared to withstand the world's temptations, this is the next step is that you just cut yourself off from all of the resources God provides for you. One of the things you'll notice is you don't really need to read your Bible too much, you don't really need to pray too much, and then you certainly start cutting yourself off from the church of God because you don't need, really need their help either. You're unique. Look at what happens next, or this kind of second element of his response so first, he thinks he's unique. Second, he thinks they're worse. Did you notice the subtle insult that Peter jabbed in there? They might fall away. I won't. In other words, his pride has caused him to look condescendingly in all the other disciples. Uh, they may, might fail. They might be the ones who fall away. They were, are going to be the ones that that abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. It's not going to be me, but it might be them. They're worse. This is a sure sign that pride is going on in your heart. If you think this way, there's a check engine light on in your heart. You need to check it. Because what it means is if you think highly of yourself, the next immediate response is to think lower of everyone else which again begins to isolate yourself from all kinds of other people. It's simply not how mature Christians think. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of how he talks about himself. You, you don't ever actually hear Paul saying things like Peter just said here. I would never do such a thing. I will not deny you. What did he say? I'm the foremost of sinners. Their chief. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm a clay pot. I'm a jar of clay. Ephesians 3, verse 8. I'm the very least of all the saints. When thinking of his own ministry, who is sufficient for these things, he would say. In other words, I don't have what it takes. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm a clay pot. I'm nothing special. I'm insufficient. I'm inadequate. That's how a true godly man or woman thinks. And that's what godly leadership looks like. It actually doesn't look like Peter as much as all the other disciples admired Peter and wanted to be like Peter and thus they imitated Peter. We're never going to fall away. Godly leadership actually looks the opposite. It says, I am weak and I need Christ. I am lowly and I need his strength. I am nothing and he is everything. I am significant. It's all insignificant. It's all about him wonder if you regularly criticize the faithfulness of believers around you. I wonder if you are a critic of other faithful Christians. Not that they do everything perfect. Are you a critic? Or can you receive the imperfect obedience of your brothers and sisters in Christ and affirm it, celebrate it, encourage it, in this moment of pride, Peter couldn't. In fact, he highlights the fact that they're probably all going to fail. Not him. You don't want to follow that kind of guy. You don't want to be that kind of guy. He thinks they're all worse than him. 
Third, and we've alluded to this all along, he thinks he cannot fail. His pride has made him self-confident. He felt able. He felt strong. He felt capable. And to the degree that you feel able, strong, and capable, that is the degree on which you will rely on yourself instead of Jesus. Let me tell you for sure how I can know if you're trusting in yourself or trusting in Jesus' strength. You can tell easily by looking at who are you looking to for strength. There's a very simple equation here. If you realize you're nothing, then you've got to look for Jesus for everything. And so you could evaluate, do you read your Bible? I mean, because if you don't read your Bible, you're implicitly saying that I have no need of it. I don't need God's Word. I already got enough. Or you could look at your prayer life. And your prayer life will demonstrate to you whether you actually think you need Jesus or you don't. Because if you don't pray, you're just saying, I don't really need you, Jesus. You know, you need Jesus, you bring your request to him. That's what prayer is. You know that you're needy, so you come to him. You'll also be able to tell if you're trusting in Jesus is do you get cared for by the church or do you isolate yourself? You know, Jesus offers his help and his resources through the local body of Christ. The Holy Spirit ministers among us, but people who are self-reliant have no need of the church. So just a litmus test. There's three things you could look at to see if you're like Peter or you're not. Do you read and study and feed upon his word? Do you pray and bring all your requests to him? Not just, hey, Lord, I need a better job. Help me out here. Or do you come to him saying, Lord, I need help today to honor you. I need help today to love my kids. I need help today to be a better spouse. I need help today to be a good worker. When the occasion is given to you, the opportunity to do something hard, do you rise up and say, I'll do it for you, Lord? Or do you humble yourself and say, I can't, Lord, help? Because what you do in those moments indicates who you're actually relying on. He thinks he cannot fail. John Piper in his book, it's a fantastic book. Anyone who's considering ministry, I would recommend it. It's a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals profoundly shaped me early on as I read it, a lot of short chapters on what it means to serve the Lord in pastoral ministry, and a lot of it is not relying on yourself, but there's one particular paragraph that struck me and has always stuck with me. I'll read it to you. He's recounting a moment that he was sitting in a seminary graduation ceremony, and he makes this comment. He says, I was amazed once to hear a seminary graduate say how adequate he felt for ministry after his years of schooling. This was supposed to be a compliment to the school. The reason this amazed me is that the greatest living theologian and missionary and pastor who ever lived cried out, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, to graduate seminary and feel adequately prepared for the weight of the ministry before you is to have no conception of the weight of the ministry before you. To have no idea what is required of you. To have no idea of the job that you have to do. And any Christian, I'm not just going to limit it to pastors, any Christian 
who feels adequately prepared for the life that God has for you has no idea what God has called you to because he has called you to live by supernatural strength, strength that you do not have, strength that you cannot conjure up from within. It is strength that comes from the outside and it is given to to us by Jesus himself. What does John 15, 5 say about how much you can do for Jesus? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You could be busy with all kinds of activities, but in the end, by the analysis of our Savior, it's all a whole bunch of nothing if you're not depending on Him. We can do nothing except that we look to Christ and He gives us that which we need and He nourishes us with that which we need. He feeds us and He prepares us and then we are strong, but only strong in the strength that He provides. Why? So that He gets the glory. What about us? Peter thinks, I can do it. I won't fail. And yet we ought to say, like Paul, the greatest theologian, the greatest missionary, the greatest pastor who ever lived, we ought to say with him, who is sufficient for these things? Who could possibly be adequate to do what you've required of us, God? We cannot. So we humble ourselves before him and we look to him for divine grace I think it was Paul David Tripp who said, our biggest problem is not that we're weak, but it's that we suffer delusions that we're strong. Your biggest problem, church, and mine right there with you, our biggest problem is we think we're strong. First, God doesn't need more heroes like Peter. He needs men who are humble. He needs women who will Depend on Him. He needs those of us to humble ourselves and admit our weakness and recognize our inability and look to Him. This is why for Peter to be fruitful, he must fail. He will fail. He'll fail dramatically. Exactly what Jesus said would happen, it happens. Failure is God's best classroom, isn't it? I know it hurts to be humbled. You've experienced that. I know it hurts to be humbled. I know it's painful to be embarrassed. Sins get exposed. Weakness everyone sees. But church, it is so good for us. And the Lord humbles us and we receive it by faith. And if you're a failure right now, you feel like you're failing as a husband or as a wife or as a son, or as a daughter, friend, or an employee, or a boss, you feel the weight of failure, I would tell you, don't despair. Maybe you didn't know it, but God signed you up for a class on humility. And lessons 1 to 10 all require failure. Again, again, and again, until that self that we have up here becomes more realistic we understand who we really are, what we really need, and who we must depend on. We don't need to be heroes. We need to be humble. We all need to be more humble. And what we'll see is insofar as we're like Peter here, you know, on one level we all would say, man, I want to be like Peter. Look at his boldness. But if our ministry has this attitude, it's going to be fruitless. It'll be active. And it'll be impressive, and it'll be fruitless, because it's done in our own strength. 
We need to be more weak. Like what A.T. Robinson said, God could not use poor instruments and feeble voices. He would make no music. Part of the music of the gospel is that you and I, weak, feeble, lowly, faltering people, we look to a strong Savior and He does mighty things through us, but He does it for His glory so that we in our strength won't steal the credit that He deserves. Let's humble ourselves, church, and look to Christ and be like this disciples later on who came to realize that Jesus did, in fact, forgive their sins and did, in fact, conquer death and did, in fact, regather them, and then He did send them out. If we humble ourselves, we will look to Christ, and He will be our hope and our strength. Let's pray. We look to You, Lord. Help us, we pray. To humble ourselves, to repent of the self-reliance and pride, and then help us to grow in confidence because of you and what you have promised and the resources you supply. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.